welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Earlier this month, six world powers reopened negotiations with Iran over the 2015 Nuclear Accord, or Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, from which the United States withdrew in 2018. Officials have described the initial discussions focused on bringing Iran into compliance and lifting U.S. sanctions as constructive. Here to discuss the implications of these talks is a longtime friend of American Jewish Committee, Patrick Clausen, Director of Research at the Washington Institute, where he directs the Viterbi Program on Iran and U.S. policy. Dr. Clausen, welcome back to People of the Pod. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the current state of the 2015 nuclear agreement. At this point, is Iran in compliance with any of its restrictions? A few. Okay. Which ones and which ones has it violated? Well, Iran is largely in compliance, although not entirely, with the commitments that it made about providing access to the international inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency. Even there, it's not fully in compliance. And Iran is also in compliance with some of the restrictions on one of the reactors that it uses. So the most important restrictions, however, were on the enrichment of uranium. And there, Iran is across the board not in compliance. The situation is even worse than it looks because the original agreement required Iran not to do research on how to enrich to a higher level and how to use more advanced centrifuges. Well, Iran has done that research, and you can't undo that research once you've done it. So Iran is allowing the inspectors still to come in, but hasn't Iran threatened to limit the inspectors' access to its research facilities? Correct. In May, we'll come up with a deadline set down by Iran's parliament saying that if there's been no progress in the negotiations, then the access for the inspectors will stop. The widespread expectation is that Iran will say, well, I guess there's enough progress. We can keep on going for a a little while longer. So explain the enrichment percentages. I think people hear, oh, they're going to you know, escalate uranium enrichment. What are the numbers that we're dealing with here? And at what point do those numbers get dangerous and why? Natural uranium has seven atoms of the stuff you use to make a nuclear weapon mixed in with 993 atoms of the stuff that you can't use to make a nuclear weapon. And so as you enrich, you reduce the number from 993 until you get it down to one. By the time you get down to 20%, then at that point, you've got 28 atoms out of the 993 left. So you've done almost all of the work. It's true that it requires a more sophisticated machine in order to do that final enrichment. You can use brute force with the simple machines at first when you're getting rid of most of those 993. But in the final stages to get down to that one to seven ratio, you have to use more sophisticated machines. And that's why it's particularly disturbing to see that Iran has been starting up the more sophisticated machines, which were ones that could get it down to that one to seven ratio. In fact, that was part of the agreement, too, was that there were limits or there was a sunset clause in that they couldn't 
fire up those more advanced machines until a certain day, correct? Correct. Now, unfortunately, that sunset clause (laughs) someday is going to have a sunset. And indeed, uh, it's only a few more years until Iran is explicitly freed from any restrictions whatsoever on what level it reaches to, how many machines it uses, and so on. So the many ways a smart move for Iran now is to run out the clock, is to wait another few years. Because during the term of the next Iranian president elected in June, which is a four-year term, we will hit that sunset clause and Iran will be able to start enriching without any restrictions whatsoever, as permitted by the JCPOA, the original nuclear deal. So should the United States or any of these world powers be negotiating with Iran, period? I mean, we're talking about the leading state sponsor of terrorism, according to the State Department. Is this somebody that we should be negotiating with? Well, Biden's priority is improving relations with Europe. And what his real objective in these negotiations is to persuade Europe that the United States is part of the solution, not part of the problem. So while Obama had a burning desire to achieve nuclear nonproliferation agreements, Biden does not. And so Biden's objective is really persuading the world, and especially the Europeans, that the United States is making a good faith effort. Is there going to be success? Probably The two sides, or all of the different sides, will make a grand announcement of what a wonderful success. But in fact, the agreement that they're likely to reach is not going to mean very much. The U.S. isn't going to give up very much, and the Iranians aren't going to give up very much. It's going to be a very limited agreement. So you're saying you don't expect it to return to the status quo of the 2015 nuclear accord? Well, Iran could agree to return to the status quo of the 2015 nuclear accord and then run out the clock. And meanwhile, what Iran has done is the advanced research that they were not allowed to do under the 2015 agreement. So all they have to do is pause, wait a few years, and then they can restart. Meanwhile, the Iranians have been concentrating on their precision missile program and on their drone programs, which is giving them a lot of the capabilities to threaten critical sites that the nuclear program would have given And what we saw with the Iranian attack on the most valuable Saudi oil installation at a place called Abqaiq, the Iranians did a lot of damage in a very precise manner. So there's much concern in Israel that Iran will be able to use these precision missiles to carry out devastating attacks on Israeli critical infrastructure, but it will be done in such a way that there won't be the civilian casualties which make nuclear weapons such unacceptable international circles. So Iran is trying to find ways to be able to accomplish the same threat to Israel, but without nuclear weapons. So what are these negotiations? You mentioned that Biden's priority is to improve relations with Europe, but what is this doing to the relations with Israel? Well, you may have noticed the Israeli body politic is rather preoccupied with other issues at the moment, whether it's COVID, whether it's the fourth or the fifth election and the formation of the government. And so this has not been the top issue on the Israeli agenda. However, I should emphasize that unlike 10 years ago, this time there's broad consensus in Israel that Iran is a deep threat. Something has to be done about it. And Israel's doing something, which is to say Israel is engaging in a gray war where there's been three major attacks on Iranian nuclear facilities and scientists in the last nine months. 
And Israel is engaging a lot of bombing raids on the precision missile program that I mentioned. You know, let me go back to a question I asked you before about the State Department considering Iran one of the leading state sponsors of terrorism. How do you earn that distinction? What has made Iran tops on that list? Well, in part, it's been our success in getting other people off the list. So countries like Sudan and, frankly, Cuba and North Korea have not done very much to sponsor terrorism because they've realized that it comes at a very high price. And so one of the very few countries, one of the very few governments that's left that thinks that sponsoring terrorism works to achieve their national purposes is the Iranians. And the Iranians sponsor quite a number of terrorist groups. Uh, we may think about Hezbollah first and foremost, and then there's Hamas, but the, you know, the Houthis in Yemen have launched over 200 missiles at Saudi sites, and it's just luck that there hasn't been a mass casualty episode. There was one of their Houthi missiles which managed to damage a commercial airplane as it sat on the tarmac, but fortunately nobody was in it. So the Iranians work hard at achieving that designation. And then, of course, there's also the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, right? That has been designated a foreign terrorist organization as well. Right. And indeed, as we speak, the foreign minister of Iran is caught on a three-hour interview explaining how it's the IRGC, or Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which makes all the key decisions on foreign affairs and doesn't necessarily even inform him about what they're doing. So we've all known this for a long time, but Foreign Minister Zarif did the cardinal sin of committing truth. Of course, you're talking about recorded comments by the Iranian foreign minister released this week in which he said the Revolutionary Guard Corps has more sway over the country than he does and accused Commander Qasem Soleimani of trying to undermine the accord at every turn. Do you expect the United States to lift any sanctions as a result of these talks? Oh, certainly. The Trump administration imposed a whole lot of sanctions, which were quite a stretch. I mean, sanctioning Iran's steel industry because the steel company is owned by a company which is owned by a company that's owned by the Revolutionary Guards, well, you know, the chain of causation there is a little bit stretched. Oh, by the way, Iran has a very large steel industry. It exports billions of dollars worth of steel a year. Uh, so in this list of some 1,500 individuals and entities that uh, the Trump administration impose sanctions on, there are a lot that are pretty far removed from support for terrorism or human rights abuses. Did they do damage? Did those sanctions do lasting damage? Well, the sanctions did damage, but that's not the only problems that Iran's economy has faced. They've also been hit hard by the downturn in the oil industry of the last five years. You know, in many ways, the Trump sanctions hit Iran about a year before the oil price collapse hit all the other OPEC members. And so when that price collapse happened, Iran said, well, so what? You people are not just now suffering the way we did. And then there's the bad policies that the Iranian government follows. I mean, the Iranian banks are isolated from the world financial system primarily because Iranian banks have such antiquated procedures that don't meet international standards. Over the last decade, the international banking system has adopted a lot of rules about money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism, about not being used for tax avoidance, and about combating corruption, and about having adequate capital. And the Iranians don't meet any of those standards, none of them. So it's hardly surprising that international banks are really not interested in dealing with Iranian banks, whether or not there are U.S. sanctions. Did the sanctions do damage to Biden's goals of diplomacy? The Trump sanctions were designed to be hard to, to remove. 
And so wherever they could, the Trump team would designate an entity in Iran for its support for terrorism or for its violation of human rights or any purpose other than the nuclear purpose. And the idea was to raise the political cost for the Biden team of removing these sanctions. Now, Biden has the full authority to remove the sanctions anytime he wants to. They were imposed by executive order. They can be lifted by executive order. It's just a question of what's the political cost of doing this. And there is, by the way, quite a bit of agreement across the political spectrum that some sanctions on Iran have to remain. Look, just in the last month, the European Union put new sanctions on Iran for human rights violations. And so there's not going to be an end to all sanctions on Iran by either the EU or the United States. Well, just this week, Iran sentenced a British charity worker to another year in prison for protesting the regime 12 years ago. So Iran's crimes against humanity seem to extend to foreign nationals and its very own citizens. Can you give us a snapshot of human rights violations that Iran is committing? We in the West pay the most attention to how Iran holds foreigners without any excuse in order to have hostages for ransom. And so there are a number of Americans, most of them Iranian-Americans, but there was one graduate student from Princeton, for instance, who'd been born in China, who was being held by the Iranians for years, and is very articulate about explaining how his interrogators made clear that they didn't believe any of the charges against him, that he was just being held to provide uh, bargaining chip negotiations with the United States. And we see a similar thing with Britons, with French scholars, Germans. So we concentrate mostly on our foreign nationals. But in addition, the real people who suffer from this, of course, are the Iranian people. And in particular, since the protest movements against the gasoline price hike that took place about a year and a half ago, the Iranian government has decided to use mass slaughter in order to repress demonstrations. Whereas a decade ago, during the demonstrations after the contested 2009 elections, the Iranian government was very careful not to use mass slaughter. It beat people up, it would arrest people in the middle of the night, and then they would disappear. But now the regime is quite prepared just to go out there and open fire with machine guns. And then you also have the Baha'i population that has certainly been repressed more, persecuted more in recent months. And then the very high-profile case of the championship wrestler, Navid Afkari. Well, the Iranian government feels quite empowered to go out and try to kidnap Iranians criticizing the regime who are abroad to try to lure them someplace where they can kidnap them. The Iranian regime has no problems of repressing people who engage in behavior that they don't like. And of course, they're openly open about how the Baha'is are, they regard as apostates. But what particularly irks the Iranian population is the hypocrisy of the regime. I recommend you visit the website Rich Kids of Tehran. And you will see pictures of young ladies in bikinis and swimming pools that they themselves post. So that while Iran is claiming that, oh, we are just imposing Islamic rules, not really. It's only they impose Islamic rules on those who are powerless. We at the Washington Institute issued a, a delightful piece this last week about gambling websites and how the regime has encouraged gambling websites. We were describing one promotion for a gambling website that was made in Los Angeles using a prominent porn star. And this is an Islamic regime. So the hypocrisy of the regime simultaneously cracking down on ordinary citizens and yet allowing the elite to engage in 
outrageously anti-Islamic behavior. It really sickens many Iranians. Is there a purpose or a motive behind these websites? No, just the, those who are in the elite feel that the rules do not apply to them. And, for instance, the online gambling is uh, to try to raise money for the regime. But the partying is notorious. And it's just that there's the expression in Persian, the, uh, the children of the elite, uh, they can get away with whatever they want to. So I also want to talk before we, we go about Iran and China's new relationship, a 25-year pact that they recently signed so that money is coming in for banking and telecommunications and healthcare, railways. Can you talk a little bit about what the implications of this new relationship are? Look, I recommend going back to read the agreement that the Chinese signed with Saudi Arabia a few months ago. It's almost word for word the agreement they signed with Iran. And I am told on good authority that the Chinese have been pressing Israel to sign a similar agreement. So the Chinese want to have good relationships with everybody in the region. And they're trying very hard to have good relationships with the Saudis and the Israelis, as well as the Iranians. So grand geostrategic shift, yes, they want to push the United States, displace the United States from the region. But a pro-Iranian orientation, that's a lot less clear. So what does it mean for the United States that China is building all of these alliances with Middle East partners? The United States has to be more concerned about uh, the successes that China is having with U.S. friends like Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates than what China is doing with Iran. And so, therefore, there's a lot of concern about Israeli high-tech companies working with the Chinese or about the Chinese telecommunications company Huawei's successes in the UAE. These are the real areas of concern for U.S. policymakers, not the China-Iran relationship. So what is the ideal outcome of this attempt to renegotiate the nuclear accord? Well, certainly it's quite important that Biden succeeds at his objective of having the Europeans think of the United States as a valuable partner and not as a problem. And it would be very useful to have the Europeans decide that uh, you know, the Iranians really are out to acquire capabilities we don't want them to have, and this is a real problem. I would think that we would probably get Iran returning to the limits in the original agreement in return for the United States lifting most of the sanctions they've imposed since leaving the agreement. Uh, but that's going to be a pretty limited accomplishment because the sunset clauses kick in before very long. Doesn't Iran have a history of responding to these economic pressures, these sanctions? I mean, is the lifting of some of these sanctions really ideal? Well, the history of sanctions is that over time, countries figure out ways to evade them. And that is why the Trump administration had to put on sanctions in more and more areas, because just to keep the same level of pressure, it was necessary to add new sanctions all the time. The reality is that you get sanctioned out after a while, and the impact of these sanctions becomes more and more a general pressure on the country rather than what you're hoping for, which is a targeted pressure on the government and the key decision makers. And a general pressure on the country is not such a great idea because what you do is you hollow out those sectors of society that are most interested in engaging with the world community. And that's not a good thing to do. If this attempt to rejoin the accord is unsatisfactory, has the United States completely missed an opportunity? Iran's supreme leader is not a young man. 
And when he dies, there's good potential for an unsettling period because he has so concentrated power in his own hands and has refused to allow any talk of successor. And he makes so many key decisions that if he's not there, what's going to happen? We don't have a good idea. We know that the revolutionary cards are well-positioned to play a key role, but frankly, they're a large and diverse organization, and we don't know which elements in the revolutionary guards will rise to the top. So we could have an unsettling period inside Iran, and the world community, and especially the United States, ought to be ready uh, to make some generous offers, test things out. Probably won't work, but that's really going to be our opportunities when the supreme leader goes. That's such a good point. So in other words, maybe we're so focused on this as a watershed moment, but perhaps that's the watershed moment that will offer the most opportunity for relations with Iran to evolve or devolve. Right. And frankly, some of our best potential allies are the people who want to see Iran develop economically rather than pursue revolutionary goals. And so I like to say that our best hope for improved U.S.-Iran relations relies with corruption, with those people who want to get rich. Really interesting. Thank you so much, Dr. Kloss. And I really appreciate you shedding some light on this for everybody as we watch these talks evolve. And it's been a pleasure. Okay. Thank you for having me. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Nisha Abkarian, the director of AJC's Project Interchange. Nisha, when you're talking with your family at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Thank you, Manya. Thank you, Sefi. As the grandchild of genocide survivors, we'll be talking at my Shabbat table tomorrow about President Biden's decision to recognize the Armenian genocide. To understand what Armenians remember every April 24th and why it matters so deeply to them, we must return to 1915, when one and a half of Turkey's 2.1 million Armenian citizens were murdered by an Ottoman regime who had begun to see this ancient community as a disloyal fifth column. My grandmother's story is typical. She was one of eight children born in Anatolia in 1905. Life as she knew it ended during that summer of 1915, when her father and older brothers were taken away for service on labor battalions. They were never seen again. A few weeks later, women, children, and elderly were driven out of their homes on forced resettlement marshes to what turned out to be the deserts of northern Syria in Iraq. No food or water was provided, and their valuables were quickly stolen by their guards. Rapes and beatings were commonplace, and those who faltered were either quickly dispatched, pushed over ravines, or simply left along the road to die. This went on for months. To the end of her life, my grandmother remembered the terrible moment when her young brother, whom she'd carried in a sling on her back, suddenly felt heavier. He'd simply died of starvation and exposure. By the time they reached Syria, all but four of my grandmother's extended family of 60 were gone. After the war, my grandmother was shunted between orphanages, where she picked up four new languages and learned to make lace and roll cigars. If you're wondering how the story ends, she left the Near East for the U.S. in 1920 and raised five amazing and accomplished children. She remains to this day the most patriotic American I've ever met. 
So if what happened to the Armenians in 1915 sounds horrific, what happened over the next 106 years was almost worse. The world seemed eager to forget or dismiss what had become an inconvenient truth, intensifying the trauma and grief felt by the Armenian community. What's more, Turkey adamantly denied that the killings were part of a plan. And sadly, successive governments have not faced this history, but instead have gone to incredible lengths to intimidate and discredit those seeking recognition of a genocide committed by an Ottoman regime. With the president's decision, the U.S. has joined 29 other countries in recognizing the historical truth of the Armenian genocide. If 106 years too late, it signals that American leaders do recognize truth and respect history. My grandmother and other survivors lost their homes, their wealth, and their families. With the destruction of villages, churches, and family records, precious and irreplaceable connections to their past and cultural history were lost forever. Despite this, the survivors kept their promise to remember their loved ones by rebuilding new lives with grace, dignity, and tremendous courage. I am so proud of AJC's support for this decision. Armenians and Jews have both suffered unimaginable losses through history. May our shared remembrance of humanity's capacity for evil inspire us all to speak out when we or other minorities are persecuted. Manya, I know you've written about the Armenian genocide. I hope that hearing this intensely personal story helps others understand why the president's use of the term genocide last week meant so very much to Armenians around the world. Thank you so much, Nisha. I cannot imagine the vindication and the validation your family felt with President Biden's announcement. To your point, words matter. And it's important to know the meaning and the impact of those words. Your family felt the absence of the word genocide to describe the systematic torture and murder of your ancestors. But I suspect, given our abysmal memory of world history, a lot of people heard about the Armenian genocide for the first time this week. The Jewish community also feels the impact of words. Words like cabal, clannish, greed, and globalist. But again, a lot of people have no idea why those terms might be troubling. I count myself on that list until only recently. When I first joined this podcast two years ago, we also came up with a new name. What to call a podcast about global affairs through a Jewish lens. As my colleagues and I spitballed possibilities, someone quipped, Hey, let's call it The Globalist. There were eye rolls and laughter, and the conversation moved on. And then I finally fessed up. What's wrong with the globalist? Sounds like a great name to me. I was quickly set straight. Yet another affirmation that despite 15 years as a religion reporter, my learning curve was still steep. But I am learning. Can you imagine where that conversation could have veered if no one in the room had known that the idea of a Jewish globalist was embedded in the core ideology of Nazism? Like dual loyalty... The word globalist is used to promote the anti-Semitic conspiracy that Jews have allegiance to some worldwide order to gain control over the world's banks, governments, and media. Today, globalist is a coded word for Jews who are seen as international elites conspiring to undermine Western society. The term globalist is included in the updated version of AJC's Translate Hate Glossary released this week. Of the nearly four dozen anti-Semitic terms, six were either born or given new life amid the pandemic, divisive elections, and racial reckoning. 
Holocaust refers to a plan to infect Jews with coronavirus in order to kill them. Deadly exchange refers to the far-fetched notion that Israel is to blame for police brutality against blacks. The glossary also explains QAnon, a far-right network that embraces a bevy of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, including some that harken back to medieval blood libels, a term also spelled out in the glossary. But there's no question that a plan to kill Jews with coronavirus, dubbed Holocaust, is anti-Semitic. What's more scary to me are the innocuous words used in a certain context that seep into our culture and vernacular, like globalist, which at first blush is really just a person who believes economic and foreign policy should not be studied in isolation, but in the context of global affairs, right? Well, it helps to have people watching out for you, which is what my colleagues at AJC do for me every day. This glossary, a go-to resource for those who, like me, hadn't been exposed to some of these terms, is AJC's way of watching out for you and those who don't realize the potentially dangerous power of words. And that's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table. Sefi, what's on your mind? An organization called Human Rights Watch, which bills itself as working to protect the people in the world most at risk of human rights abuses, released a new report this week accusing Israel of perpetrating apartheid in the West Bank. It's an ugly charge. A close reading of their report reveals that they actually needed to redefine apartheid in order to make the term fit the situation. Apartheid in South Africa, of course, was racial oppression. White colonialists created a black African underclass and used brutal tactics and banal ones to maintain dominance. The conflict between Israelis and Palestinians is not a racial one at all. About half of Jewish Israelis are of Arab extraction and look racially indistinguishable from Palestinians. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a national one, with two competing nationalisms, Zionism and Palestinian nationalism, clashing violently over the past century. Why does that matter, you might say? If Israel is really doing ugly things in the West Bank, what does it matter whether they are motivated by racism or nationalism? Well, here's why it matters. The only thing that needed to happen to end apartheid, like with Jim Crow in America or, for example, the Uyghur genocide today, is for the bad people to stop doing the bad thing. But many of the things that Israel does are done for justifiable reasons in an effort to curtail the Palestinian reign of terror that has claimed so many Israeli lives and so scarred the Israeli psyche. Most Israelis have no desire to continue sending Israeli soldiers to police the West Bank, but they know that the alternative could be a return to the days of suicide bombings, stabbings, car rammings, and shootings. Human Rights Watch knows this too, of course, but nevertheless demands that Israel change the policies that keep Israelis, Jews, and Arabs safe. One has to wonder why. It's almost as though Human Rights Watch has it in for Israel. No, actually, it's not almost that at all. It's exactly that. Yesterday, my colleague Avi Meyer tweeted a story about Khulud Badwawi, HRW's Israel and East Jerusalem consultant. Avi first encountered Badawi in 2012 when she tweeted a picture of a dead child and falsely claimed that Israel had killed them. Badawi was later fired from a human rights job at the UN when her history of fabricating human rights claims against Israel was uncovered. Then there's the case of Omar Shakir, who runs the Israel portfolio at HRW. 
He does his work from afar because Israel canceled his visa when it found out that he was busy promoting boycotts of Israel and Muslim Jewish dialogue programs. Most damning of all, however, remains an op-ed from 2009 by Robert L. Bernstein, the founding chairman of Human Rights Watch, in which he denounces the organization he created and says that it was founded to pry open closed societies and expose their wrongdoings to the world, but instead was focusing obsessively on democratic Israel with its free press, robust civil society, and dozens of domestic human rights organizations. Unfortunately, Bernstein's words ring truer than ever today. And that's what I'll be talking about at my Shabbat table. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash people of the pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop onto Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.